Hello and a very warm welcome to the gardening podcast that's for everyone who wants to enjoy growing their own flowers, fruits and vegetables. I'm Dan. And I'm Julia. And together we're two good gardeners. We're an all-inclusive podcast so whether your garden is big or small, north or south, sunny or shady, we are here to share our gardening know-how and great ideas that you can try at home. We upload a new episode every fortnight, packed with news, timely tips and the occasional interview with gardeners we admire. We know you're busy people, so we like to keep things short and sweet. Think of this podcast as a bento box of delicious goodies to be consumed with gusto. And now we've whetted your appetite, let's crack on with episode three. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Well, hello and welcome back to all our lovely listeners. I'm so looking forward to this episode as we've got some fascinating topics to cover. There's every chance we'll get carried away, so let's get stuck in straight away with a roundup of the last fortnight. Julia, what have you been up to in East Sussex and further afield? Well, Dan, I have been further afield. I went up to London to Maidervale to Clifton Nurseries to do a workshop um, and a book signing for the Little Growers Cookbook. And some children came along and we made pots out of newspaper and loo roll pots and we sewed pumpkins and played around with basil seedlings, which I will elaborate on later. Um, then I did came back to East Sussex. I did a one-to-one and... Since then, I've been battling in the greenhouse with a mouse that seems to have moved into my house. And uh, yeah, I don't quite know what to do about it. So I have set some traps now because it is basically the seedlings or the mouse. And it is very clever. And I'm losing sweet corn, some of which you've given me. I'm losing uh, courgette seeds and all sorts of things. And I can just tell. I go in in the morning and a little snout has been in, in the pots so I'm getting a bit cheesed off with that. So that's been my fail of the week. And um... <laughs> <laughs> Cheesed off with the mouse. That's... <laughs> I won't tell you what I am with my rat, which is still ongoing, eating the tulip bulbs, even when the tulips are in flower. Is it really? Oh, gosh. OK, well, that's good. I can make a pun without realising it. Um, anyway, and then moving on, I've on some highs here. The bluebells are beginning to peep through and the tulips are not far behind. Some in flower, but some are really slow. But my daffodils are disappointing now because they're all nearly over. They are definitely weather beaten. I sort of feel the same, but my daffs have given into it. And then finally, I finished varnishing um, a birdhouse gourd that I grew last year. And uh, it's actually going to be taken to the Alatex stand at the Chelsea Flower Show so I've been putting linseed oil and making it weatherproof and um, and it's all to do with encouraging you know birds and wildlife and uh, biodiversity and sustainability and everything in, in the show at, at the flower show so that's why I'm, I'm going to take it with me um, which brings me on to the, another topic that uh, Songbird Charity have got in touch, haven't they, Dan? So they're called Songbird Survival UK. So you can look them up, Google them. They've got an Instagram account and they're a brilliant charity and they are trying to encourage everyone to bring back more songbirds into our gardens. And um, and you can help in a number of ways. You can put up little bird boxes you can donate you can plant plants to encourage birds to hide to feed in your garden so I sort of feeling that my birdhouse is along that topic as well so I'm I'm, I think I'm on point with the birdhouse. (laughs) 
You definitely are. And I don't know if other people can hear it, but I can definitely hear the birds singing in your garden, which is really lovely. And I think the people of East Kent got the memo as well, because I sold a lot of nesting pouches this weekend at the Broadstairs Food Festival, where I was. And um, so there's going to be a lot of very cosy birds. And I was actually next to Romney Marsh Wools, who make all sorts of wool products and have wool for nesting as well. So there's going to be some very cosy birds around in Thanet. Then 10 days ago, I was up in Northamptonshire at the Rare Plant Fair at Evanley Wood Garden, which was a real treat. Such a beautiful garden. I wish I'd got to see more of it, but I was busy uh, with lots of other fabulous nurseries who were selling an incredible array of plants, some spring flowering, some for a little bit later on. Of course, I didn't come away without a few purchases. I bought a very interesting plant called a dichroa, which is very similar to a hydrangea, but a little bit more tender. It's the sort of plant I see in Cornwall, but not very often anywhere else. So I'm looking forward to growing that in my little sheltered garden. I bought a delphinium called blue tit, which is indigo blue with a black eye. I'm not quite sure where the blue tit reference came in. Maybe it's just the fact that it's blue, but um, it's a little bit of a shorter variety and I'm hoping that will grow well on my allotment. And I also bought a beautiful spring pea, Lathyrus vernus, which is related to your favourite flower, the sweet pea, Julia. Uh And that has pale pink flowers so that's a little uh, perennial that comes up every year it grows about 30 centimeters tall and at this time of year this particular one has pale pink flowers but they can be purple or even a sort of turquoise blue and I just love them because they pop up before everything else gets going they flower and then they sit there quite quietly for the rest of the year and die down again in the winter but it's a really lovely little perennial if you have a look out for that. And in the garden, we've been enjoying the scent of hyacinths and hundreds of daffodils, but I'm still waiting for that spring surge that comes with warmer weather. I think it's been quite cold for the time of year here in Kent. Well, you're quite right, Dan. I mean, as I said, that my daffodils are weather-beaten. I mean, I've never had such a short season. It's quite bonkers here. And um, there are certain things that are coming on and certain things that have gone. And I've noticed my wisteria is now in bud, but haven't really had the tulips yet. So I'm not sure what's going on. Um, But I love the sound of your perennial sweet pea. So I've got a perennial sweet pea, but it's that rather sort of harsh cerise pink. And they're very long flowers. In fact, they're great for going in a vase, but they have no scent at all. Does this one have a scent or is it the same as the the perennial one? I don't think it has a scent, but it's very different. It's much, much shorter and it doesn't climb. So it makes a very neat little bush, like a little dome-shaped bush. And um, cut more like a vetch, I would say, than perhaps a sweet pea, if that makes any sense. Yeah, okay. It sounds lovely. I'm going to have to Google that later and see what it looks like. <laughs> yes. I think it grows from seed, so I'll have to save you some. Okay, thank you. I do have quite a special plant. Uh, this is slightly off-piste, but it is uh, called Baptista aurelius. And... Um, it is, it's sort of got black pea pods and I bought the seeds quite a long time ago from Great Dixter. Do you know that plant? I do. That's a lovely plant, yes. And I think 
one of my neighbours here in Kent, Steve Edney, I think he has the National Collection of Baptistas. So maybe that's a, another jolly that we should be doing at some stage, going and visiting that. OK, yeah. No, good plan. I'm all on for a, an outing, Dan. That sounds good. So every fortnight we pick a hot topic to discuss. Something that's in the news, that's of the moment, or an issue that we're both really passionate about. The topics have been relatively uncontroversial so far, but this one really gets our goat, and that's ugly front gardens, particularly those that have been entirely paved over to accommodate cars and dustbins. Front gardens are some of our most valuable green spaces, and there was a time when a well-groomed front garden was a matter of considerable pride, welcoming visitors to your home and contributing to the appearance and status of the neighbourhood. But sadly, an overwhelming need to park vehicles has led to many front gardens being paved or tarmacked over, and that's had a big impact on the environment. And it's not only where needs must. I find it really depressing when I see the front gardens of some of the ample houses where I live looking more like car dealerships than green spaces. It seems some people can't find it in their heart to plant a single shrub or climber. I totally agree, Dan. Um, I feel bad that we're calling them ugly, but but they are, aren't they? You know, with nothing green in sight whatsoever. And um, and I think it's not just cars too. I think a lot of people have bicycles these days, and I think bike sheds have also become a bit of a an unsightly feature in gardens. And they have replaced they've replaced lovely things like the the monkey puzzle tree that I sort of grew up with, and beautifully mown lawns and nicely clipped hedges. Um, you know, and, and actually the cars uh, have become more status symbols than the front gardens, I feel. You know, hard surfaces, urban areas seem hotter and um, it contributes to flooding. They can be stark and bleak and they do nothing to attract wildlife or remove pollution from the air. I mean, front gardens used to be a place to chat with neighbours. We know that communication with people and gardening have significant mental health benefits. So I feel that that's been taken away. And people definitely seem prouder of their cars than their gardens these days. And let's not forget the hedgehogs. I mean, now, you know, they really haven't got anywhere to hide, to ramble through. And, you know, their numbers are just diminishing so badly every year. Yes, it's very challenging. And you make a good point, because although, you know, the lawns and hedges uh, look very presentable, uh, they're also really good at removing dust particles and pollution from the atmosphere, which keeps the air a lot cleaner and cooler. And um, part of me feels that we've just become so obsessed with our privacy now that we've lost interests in the part of our property that other people can see and that instead of sort of putting our best foot forward and making the front of our homes look beautiful we want to hide all the best bits behind the garden gate so now we do literally air our dirty laundry on the front garden you know our bins are out there all the rubbish is out there and you know I just find it quite upsetting when I see streets that have nearly all been paved over, the front gardens are no more and there's just lots of multicoloured bins out there. And I, I suppose some people might feel we're being a bit harsh because in some cases, you know, needs must and there has to be somewhere to park. But I still can't tell you how happy it makes me when I see a really attractive front garden or just stop to admire a bush or a tree that's coming over the pavement that's covered in bloom. You know, that really makes my day and 
makes me feel happy as I'm out and about. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, imagine if we encourage people to grow fruit and veg in their front gardens. That could be a good campaign we could start. <laughs> I'm sure if anyone could do that, it would be you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when we lived in London, I did grow fruit and veg, no surprise, in the back garden. But actually, I had a really pretty front garden and it was a bit infuriating not being able to park. But there was something really lovely at the end of the day coming back to something that we'd thought about. We had scent, we had evergreens we had some trees we've had a mulberry it was really beautiful and just you know wisteria time coming in and having that smell you are in a good frame of mind walking through your front door but of course we are generalizing um, and there are lots of beautiful front gardens out there so please don't be offended and if you do have parking issues and there is only the only way is to have off street parking then please just think about planting something a hedge at least or if you have a wall, maybe some alpines or creeping plants could be could be nudged in like Aubrecia, that takes off and that would do a lot of good. And if you had space, maybe a small tree, that would be lovely. And, you know, something with scent, something that's seasonal. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it would make a huge difference because I think I read somewhere that 50% of the world's population live in cities. Wow, that's probably true. I mean, as you say, there are lots of ways to bring greenery into a front garden, even if it does have to make room for a car. Climbers are brilliant, um, of course, because they are just, you know, either following your uh, fence or the wall of the house. And hanging baskets, unlikely to get in anyone's way, although a little bit labour intensive. But I, you know, my grandparents used to have a drive that was two concrete tracks with gravel in between. And it was one of the prettiest little tapestries of flowers and plants that I've ever seen. There was, there was primroses in there, there were violets in there, there was lots of that lovely, uh, I think it's Mexican fleabane, the Origeran Carvinskianus, seeding itself around in there. And I think so long as plants are yeah. low growing and uh, don't mind being trodden on occasionally, then I think they're perfectly okay growing in gravel and I'd like to see a lot more of that rather than um, concrete paviers or just tarmacking because it's pervious the plants can just move around as you like and you can always pop a few extra things in I was also thinking that you know as electric cars become more commonplace and and there's less likelihood of any sort of nasties leaking out the underside of your car then then growing things underneath your car is going to become less and less of a problem. Yes, that's true. So if you get chamomile or thyme or things like that, it would be lovely to tread on, wouldn't they? Yes, lovely as you get out of the car, I should think. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Um, so perhaps drop us a line if you feel as strongly as we do. Maybe you'll feel the other way. Um, but perhaps, you know, you've had to pave your front garden, but you've compensated for it in other ways. Or maybe you found a clever solution that doesn't cost too much that we haven't discussed. So do please let us know. Yes, we'd really like to hear your thoughts on front gardens. Okay, so every episode I share my product of the week and Julia shares a project that everyone can try at home. What clever idea have you got up your sleeve this time, Julia? <laughs> well, I think it is quite clever this time, Dan. And obviously it is thrifty, which I feel every project I'm going to think of it's going to have to be thrifty so no pressure um but those of you who know me quite well will not be surprised to know that i'm going to talk about one of my favorite things to grow and that is basil 
But I'm going to talk about basil sold in small pots in supermarkets because I don't know whether you all realise it, but a small they're called growing herbs in most of the supermarkets, but a small pot is not one basil plant. It is in fact about 25 to 30 seedlings crammed in a little tiny pot that you take home, you harvest the leaves for your pasta or your pesto, whatever you're going to use it for, and then horror of all horrors, a few days later, you think, well, why has my plant died? Well, the reason is because you've cut off all the lifeline to all those little seedlings and they're just going to droop and die. And Like we said before, with certain garden centres, we feel that this is a bit of a con because obviously you're going to go back and buy a new plant and the same thing will happen again. So if you look carefully, you could take, remove the contents from your little pot and you'll notice that each stem has a root attached and you will also see that most of those roots are really pot bound which is really annoying. And if you can very carefully divide them up, you could lay them out on some newspaper, you will be surprised how many seedlings are in that pot. I've said 25 to 30, and I think that's probably about fair. So what I do, and it's what I did with the children at Clifton last week, is that I just divide them all up carefully. I put each seedling into a new pot, about the same size as the pot that you have bought with the 25-30 seedlings in and I put in some new potting compost and I give a bit of water and I row them all up on the window ledge because they've all been used to being inside in a in a shop or you know they haven't been outside anywhere they haven't got cold they haven't had the elements and then in a couple of days they might look a bit limp to begin with but they will spring up and they will start standing upright and producing more shoots. And if you're careful, you can keep pinching out the central growing tip of each one of your seedlings and you'll end up with lots of bushy individual basil plants. In fact, your one bought pot will give you too much basil all summer because they will keep producing leaves all summer. And it is extraordinary. And even if you don't like basil, I feel you should go and buy the growing basil (laughs) because it's such an extraordinary thing. I mean, it is very thrifty. I noticed that in my local supermarket, the pot cost £1.80 for my demo. And obviously it hurt me to be spending money on it because I normally sow basil from seed. But I've now got a window ledge in my greenhouse full of these mature basil seedlings. And I don't really need to sow many. I mean, I will do because I sow different varieties, but it's amazing. Um, And if you, the the main thing is that when you've done this, you've got to keep pinching out. And if you don't understand what pinching out is, it's looking at the one tall stem. And as the tall stem gets longer and longer, you take off the whole, the, the top of it. It's hard to describe, but probably if it's about, let's say four inches tall, I would remove it back down to two inches to where you've got an apex with some new leaves starting. You look carefully and you can see where a leaf is. And in the apex between the stem and the leaf, you'll see two little leaves budding. And if you take back to that, almost within a day or two, those leaves will start growing. And the key is to give the root space to grow because those seedlings are going to die whether you harvested that pot or not they would run out of nutrients very, very quickly. Uh, Dan, have you ever bought one of those growing herbs? Yes, I do. I cheat an awful lot with these growing herbs because often I either don't have room in the greenhouse to start new seedlings off 
or I just forget. So with something like parsley, I do this with as well. And with Greek basil, which is my favourite, I often go on the hunt for a pot of supermarket basil and do exactly as you've uh, just instructed. I sort of rip the root ball apart very gently and um it's going and to make say i hope you don't rip them <laughs> no i don't go all grrr on it but um but <laughs> i rip the i rip the root ball apart and um sometimes i will indiv get individual seedlings from it and sometimes i will plant them out in little clumps so with greek basil or even parsley okay. it's okay to have i think it's okay to have two or three seedlings maybe next to one another but either way it's actually a very good way of getting herbs quite quickly and especially if you're a little bit reticent about growing from seed and some seeds can be precocious parsley can be a bit awkward sometimes um yes. then you've got plants that are already growing that are a fraction of the price of buying a potted herb in a garden center that has maybe been grown on individually so I, I mean, I always love your thrifty tips, Julia, but this is one that I really, really, it really <laughs> can endorse firsthand because it's a it's a great way of getting more. The only thing that is worth mentioning, I suppose, is that um, those supermarket herbs have probably been grown in a massive greenhouse under grow lights somewhere and haven't really had to endure any outside temperatures or wind or rain. So if you do yep. buy a pot from the supermarket do as Julia has suggested and nurture them in a greenhouse or on a windowsill get them used to growing outside before you plant them out and then you should be away but basil's quite good I think grown inside most of the time isn't it yeah so I was going to say that you don't even need to have any outside space you could keep the basil inside all the time if you wanted to just keep pinching out the tips um, and you'll have more tips to pinch out the bushier the basil becomes. So just going back to your Greek basil. So the basil that you buy from the supermarket is just sweet Genovese. It's the normal. I don't want to use the word common, but it's the one that we all know. Um, but there are other varieties that if you did want to sow from seed, you could. And the Greek one, it's got a little teeny tiny leaf. And I end up always calling it basil brush. It's just this sort of thing that I've got into my head. I'm showing my age here. Hopefully some of you listeners will be a similar age. To, to Dan and I and you'll understand but it's funny it's a it's a brilliant basil to grow but I it would be hard to, I haven't seen that actually for sale as a as a growing herb but, but I'll look harder um and there's another well there's another one that I love which is called lettuce leaf basil and the Ooh. leaves are the size of my hand that is splendiferous if that's a word it's the most amazing basil and it's just as tasty as the as the smaller leaf one, but I always grow that one because it's just sort of gimmicky and it's fun and it's slightly crinkly. And then there's a Thai basil, which is slightly purpley, which has got slightly more of an aniseed flavour. I mean, basil is, is easy to grow from seed if you find these seeds. And then there's another one, an African blue, which I was introduced to last year, which is actually grown not from seed. It's grown from cuttings. And that is a perennial. So I was sent two cuttings last autumn and I have managed to keep them alive and nurture them on the kitchen window ledge. And I've been pinching them out. It's been slow, but now they're beginning to take off and it looks really fascinating. It's slightly purple and green all all in the same leaf it, it's amazing yes, so it's, i'm looking forward to trying that it's actually a really nice plant for planting out in the summer the scent is a bit 
it's a bit coarser than a culinary basil, but the bees absolutely love it. So um, yes, you'll have oh, great fun with that know. this summer. I think I think perhaps basil's going to have to be one of your uh, pick of the crops at some stage. I think it will have to be. Yes, good good point. Well, anyway, so that's that's my project. But I'm guessing, Dan, that your product of of the fortnight, um, having seen your Instagram feed over the Easter weekend, I have a feeling I know what you're going to talk about. And um, I think we've got a new name for you, haven't we? So you're not just known as Dan anymore. You're going to be Dan the Kenzan Man. Can you <laughs> I please could very elaborate? Easily be Dan the Kenzan Man because <laughs> I've become a little bit addicted to my Kenzan, which people will probably know a little bit better as a flower frog. And Kenzan actually means sword mountain in Japanese, which gives you some idea of what this is. It is a little uh, disc of spikes, which is used for displaying cut flowers. And it's very fashionable at the moment because it makes a great alternative to Oasis, which or floral foam, maybe I shouldn't use the brand name, but that that isn't very good for the environment because it can't be recycled and it all sort of crumbles up and makes a nasty mess. Um, and it's also a very nice way of displaying flowers in a slightly more contemporary, uncluttered way. So I think people are really coming round to these curious little uh, discs of spikes for displaying flowers. They're made of lead and the spikes are brass and that means that they can sit under the water without going rusty and they've got a really lovely weight so that you can put some quite long and heavy flowers and branches into them without the display toppling over. And they were originally a, a Japanese invention used for ikebana, which is the very stylish uh, way of displaying flowers that people spend years, decades trying to master. And uh, if you look on Instagram at some of the accounts where uh, this form of floral art is practiced, you will see some most staggering um, displays of flowers that are, are so artistic it's hard to believe that they they're actually posed like that so I find it quite mind-blowing but you don't have to be a, a talented floral artist to use them it's a really great way of displaying those few flowers that you often find when you're wandering around the garden that have snapped off or are all on their own and you think how much nicer they'd look, look if you could see them at closer quarters so I think a flower frog is a brilliant way of displaying those odd bits and pieces so that you can really appreciate the flowers and the stems for their individual beauty. They do work better with flowers that have quite stiff stems or flowers that have been conditioned properly, by which I mean they need to have been stood in some water um, up to their necks for overnight is, is good. And that just helps them become a little bit more stiffer. And there are some flowers that are better seared at the bottom. So you put them in boiling water for a few seconds at the bottom and that sort of seals the stem off. They don't work so well with floppy stems that don't hold their shape but that said that I haven't found many things that they haven't worked well with I've even got some tiny anemone blander in my flower frog downstairs at the moment and they're perking up quite nicely 
of course, they are absolutely indestructible, these things. So I've still got some of my granny's flower frogs. And, you know, if you buy one now, you're going to be handing them down through the generations. Um, only disadvantages, really, with them is that, that with very fine stems, they would be quite fiddly to use. And if you've got terrible eyesight like me, um, you need uh, to be a little bit careful about uh, how you put the stems in so that you don't spike yourself and not the flower stem. But other than that, <laughs> I think they're brilliant. And of course, it's a way of utilising vessels that otherwise you couldn't show flowers off in. So you can put a Kenzan, even in a shallow saucer so long as the water comes over the top of the spikes you can put almost anything in there and you can use almost any vessel so it's great for things like bowls and dip dishes that otherwise you might not use you might have hanging around and it and it creates a really rather contemporary and stylish display I don't know have you used them Julia well yes because as you know I, I have a small little box of I've got four different shapes well there's square two squares and two circles and I absolutely love them and they're new to me but I was going to ask you um, do they come in different sizes because mine are quite small and I was laughing because when I tried I'm a bit more of a plonker than an ikibana <laughs> and um, <laughs> they sort of plonk in but my fat fingers couldn't really find the way round to get so many in so I ended up with probably only five or six flowers and stems um, and I wondered whether you could get big ones because a, a friend of mine was talking about an old set she had inherited from her mother and apparently they all link together so I wonder whether they're more a bit like a train in the old days yes there is um, there are sets like sun and moon sets where they actually can interlock into one another and those are really quite special so maybe your friend has got quite a find there but of course before Oasis came along this is what was used to probably create big altar arrangements and and by having ones that interlink you can make them fit in the bottom of every vessel now you've got the very tiny very ones true. which are really nice for sort of scattering around um i've got a nice little arrangement i did downstairs where i've got just six stems um across four of them and that looks lovely but yes you're right they do come in different sizes so you can do some quite substantial uh, displays with them as they go up in size the main thing advantage of the bigger ones of course is the weight because it allows you to put you know beautifully contorted branches even bits of driftwood you know if you look at some of the prof how the professionals do it they will have all sorts of things in their Kenzan uh, perhaps secured in different ways but they work very well with big stems because obviously there's more spikes that can go up into them. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely. I mean, I um, I, I didn't get on so well. I wanted some blossom, thinking of the sort of the you know, Japanese style, and I had a nice little sort of um, little sort of like a dish that I that I put it in, and I didn't get on so well with that, and I kept stabbing it. <laughs> the branch was just too twiggy, so I'm not sure that would have been a good thing. But I'm I'm going to revisit because I absolutely do love do love my mine were a gift, and I I just think it's one of the nicest things to be given. Actually, I love it, and I kind of often go in the garden and think, oh. Could I put that in? No, a daffodil's probably a bit too big. Um, but yeah, I, I put some anemones in and some little flowers. Grape hyacinths look really lovely in them. They do. Um, and also sweet.
sweet peas would be nice, wouldn't they? They would. And it just really lets you appreciate the form. So I think they're absolutely brilliant. Yes, I've got one question though. So uh, you put the water in to cover the spikes at the base of the stems. How Would you just keep topping up or would you change that water if it wasn't absorbed? I think I would keep topping up. But the one thing which is nice about a dish is it's quite easy to just hold on to the flowers, tip it slightly, take the old water out and top up again. Much easier than replacing the water in a vase. So for that, I think Kenzan are brilliant. Yeah, okay, that's a good plan. So how, uh, they're not on your website yet though, Dan, are they? So um, is it something that you're going to be putting on or how could people buy them? Yes, no, they're not on the website yet because I can't get enough of them, Julia. I've got a big <laughs> delivery coming well, tomorrow, which I'm um, I'm taking to my events at the weekend, which I'll tell you about later. And then eventually I will get enough to put on the website. But if anyone is desperate for one, they just need to email me at the address, which will be in the show notes, and I'll work out how to get one to you. But yes, they'll be there eventually. And um, yes, I'm just thinking of all different ways of how to display them now for the weekend. Oh, it sounds brilliant, Dan. So yeah, fantastic. So now it's time for you to share your pick of the bunch. So I can't wait to hear about what you've chosen and what you're going to talk about. So please reveal all. So yes, my pick of the bunch. Well, you would normally think a pick of the bunch would include flowers. And this plant does flower, but um, is mostly known for its foliage. And it's one of my favourite plants. I grow a lot of different varieties here in my garden. And it's Solanostemon, I think that is how you say it. Um, Or most of us would call it Coleus, or call them Coleus. And there was a time when coleus were incredibly popular house plants. They were grown in greenhouses and they were bedded out as well. And in Scandinavia and the USA, they are still massively popular plants. But here, for some reason, which I expect is that they were considered a little bit gaudy at some stage, probably in the 60s and 70s, they really, really fell out of favour. And there are thousands of varieties of coleus. What makes them so remarkable to me is just the huge variety of leaf shapes combined with a kaleidoscopic range of colours and different shapes of variegation. I don't really know any plant that has such diverse leaf forms as coleus. And of course, that's all come through lots of hybridisation over the years, which is why we've got so many. But... They are truly remarkable plants and very beautiful to look at. Although they're not hardy, they are very accommodating plants. They tolerate partial shade and they do very well in our cool summers. Slugs, of course, with any as with anything that's a little bit um, fleshy or anything desirable, in fact, uh, will munch them and they won't tolerate a frost. But they're the easiest plants ever to grow from cuttings and they root really quickly in a cup of water. In fact, I've got some just in front of me that are rooted and ready to be potted up. You can grow coleus from seed, but as with dahlias that we talked about last week, uh, you won't necessarily get uh, exactly what you're looking for from seeds. They don't come true, the named varieties, from seeds. So they're best bought or propagated as cuttings. 
And I like to grow them in pots because they're very easy to grow. They'll fill a pot very quickly from a tiny cutting. They'll just take a couple of months to fill that pot with beautiful foliage. And they can be bedded out if you've got the right conditions for them. They like um, a little bit of dappled shade. A few of the new varieties have been developed to tolerate direct sunshine, but in a lot of cases, they will lose the best of their colouring if they're in ferocious hot sunshine. I've got a very shady passageway that leads to my front door and every year I have 20 or so pots out there with different varieties planted in them. They have different colours and leaf shapes and I call it my coleus corridor. I've got lots of different favourites, um, but it's the smaller leaved <laughs> ones that appeal to me most. Uh, Burgundy Wedding Train is a fantastic little variety. And again, your friends will thank you for cuttings you take of that and give to them because they will never be without it. Lord Falmouth, that's a really pretty one again, which is sort of green and pinkish and cream. Pink Chaos, bit of a nutty name. It's got you can't see what I'm wearing, but the, the leaves are very similar bubblegum pink to the top that I'm wearing. And Wisley Tapestry is another one with very, very <laughs> leaves, uh, the shape of a, the wings of a comma butterfly, if that helps you to uh, imagine what they look like. And if you, if you prefer larger leaves in the garden, then uh, anyone who's seen pictures of my garden in the summer will have noticed a coleus called henna, which has henna coloured reverse to the leaves and a sort of bright, limey green top. Um, and the leaves are shaped like a nettle. And in fact, the common name of a coleus is flame nettle. So it's the epitome of uh, what people imagine campfire as well is quite special because that has brownish leaves with a purple tinge so I love both of those so yes that is my uh, pick of the bunch this week is uh, coleus and I wish everyone would grow more of them well Dan fascinating um, on a few points here so I firstly have a confession I thought coleus was a house plant mainly and just put out in <laughs> places in the summer so is it sold as a house plant and is that why I don't like it because I'm slightly put off by house plants because the second confession is that <laughs> give me a house plant and I will kill it <laughs> I am terrible and so I've never had a, a, a Calais and I'm thinking maybe I should try but I'm a bit scared I'm going to kill it off if you give me a cotton. well you won't kill it off are they sold as house plants um they're the main nursery that they're available from in the UK and there are pitifully few of them is Dibley's nurseries in Wales and yes they are sold alongside other house plants but I actually find them a little bit awkward to keep as house plants they tend to uh, attract aphids indoors and red spider mites and actually that's because it's a little bit warm for them indoors I think um, it might just be I I think a lot of plants are harder to keep as house plants than they are to grow outdoors my main uh, tactic with a coleus would be to grow them outdoors during the summer take cuttings at the end of the autumn overwinter them as cuttings and then harden them off and grow them back outside again. In Scandinavia, however, where they have very, very long winters, people grow them as the most spectacular house plants. They grow them on 
big pedestals and let them become huge sort of shrubby bushes and um, and of course you have to because the winters are really cold there they would never survive outside but um, I think they're quite hard work from that point of view so I just like to grow them outside during the summer. Okay, no, fair enough. Well, maybe I should try. I do like the sound of henna. I think I think she sounds rather nice. I'm going to call her a <laughs> she. very beautiful. <laughs> okay, so now it's time, I think, high time indeed, for your top of the crops. What are, what are you going to be tickling our taste buds with this week, Julia? Well, something very tasty and quite expensive if you were to buy it from the supermarket. And it's very seasonal because it is asparagus. So I love asparagus and I do have a patch here where I grow it because um, there's not much tastier than a homegrown spear or two that you harvest yourself. And the the season is quite short and I know you can buy asparagus all year here in the UK, but it does have a short season. And when it's in season, it is so deliciously tasty. It just beats all the other ones that you can buy all year round. It's delicious. But you require something, which is patience. You need a lot of patience if you're going to grow your own asparagus. Now, um, March, or March and April, I should say, are the perfect two months, so early spring, to plant asparagus if you're thinking about bringing it into your vegetable garden. Um, you don't bother planting at any other time. You probably might be able to get away in the autumn, but the key time would be now. So look out for crowns. Don't buy plants. Don't buy seeds. I know they're sold, but it's very difficult to raise asparagus from seed because it actually takes a very long time. And buying them as plants from the garden centre is a really bad idea because they hate any form of root disturbance. And obviously you would have to transplant them and you could just kill your plants off by moving them from the plastic pot uh, to your to your bed. You need to allocate an area um, that's big enough to accommodate uh, enough plants to feed you tasty spears. So I have about 20 crowns in an area about eight foot by six. So I've slightly crammed in, but it works. Um, If you work on the rule of thumb that one crown or one plant would give you about 20 spears a season, that's how you could work out how many you would need to feed and how large your family is. Uh, Don't grow it if no one else will eat it. Um, So that's the thing, some people hate it, but I love it. And um, when you buy these crowns, which are a little bit like a, I suppose the best way to describe them is they look a bit like a dahlia tuber, sort of similar, not as fat. <clears throat> they um, they are sold as being one year old. So by buying them, you would plant them and then you can harvest them in their second year of growing. So two years of, of having them in the ground, you can then lightly harvest the first spears. And then your third year of growing, you can then harvest the whole lot. But you have to be quite careful for a while. So you dig trenches to put them in. You dig trenches about eight eight inches deep. You then would lay some lovely rotted compost or some manure, whatever you've got, um, in the middle and then you would lay these crowns over them so that you sort of have them hanging over so you put the center of the crown on top of your compost and then you spread out the rest of the roots and then you just cover with a couple of inches of soil back on top because they lay very close to the surface of the soil the one thing they hate is weeds and they hate any interference with their roots whatsoever so 
they are they're not really high maintenance but they are on the fact that you need to keep the area where they're planted totally weed free now i've got a little bit of a, a way of dealing with this so i just let nasturtiums run rampant through them because nasturtiums are so shallow rooted and they end up every season covering the whole area that means i haven't got to weed it once the asparagus spears have finished um, being spears and I allow them to grow to a fern so what happens is you plant your asparagus let's say we fast track to year three I've let a few spears grow last year I've been tempted to pick them but I haven't I'm now in year three and I've got spears popping up all over the shop because they are slightly random they don't all come in one go and they grow very quickly so in the morning I might go and see a little tip poking through by the evening it's five inches tall they are extraordinary anyway so let's say I've got enough I want to pick I get a knife because you only harvest them with a knife you don't pull because they're quite shallow below the surface of the soil so you slice them with a knife and um, and I harvest those so I will harvest for maximum 10 weeks and then I just let more spears grow and tempting it is I don't pick them and these spears gradually grow taller and taller and they turn into an asparagus fern which I think Dan you will correct me if I'm wrong but it's rather similar to the asparagus fern houseplant that you can see they're beautiful tall ferny plants um, and I, I, I'm going to ask if that's a similar uh, family or not in a minute. Anyway, and so they get very tall and I have ferns probably about five foot tall all summer. So I'll finish picking early June and then these beautiful ferns will just be looking magnificent in this patch. And then come September, October time, the ferns start to turn a lovely sort of golden yellow and then sort of orangey colour. And then what you have to do is you have to slice them all off and then you just mulch the whole area and that is the job done and you leave them and then the next year they come back even better and the following year better because they will last and crop for about 20 years. So a lot of people say, I don't want to grow asparagus. It's too time consuming. I don't have the patience. If you can get over the two year wait, they are so worth it because they get better and better each year and I get really excited I've already started checking the patch to see if I can see something poking through I know it's very early um, but they're amazing but so the asparagus fern is that related to the asparagus crowns that I've planted outside do you know yes it is and I think if you look very closely at the asparagus ferns that you grow as indoor plants if you look very closely at the like very very fine shoots that come up you will see that how similar to a spear of asparagus they actually look. So yes, they are all related. And um, I just didn't want to interrupt you there. I was so swept away by your your waxing lyrical on asparagus that I was like, no, <laughs> let her go, let her go. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, I think you summed it up so well. You know, it is a, a plant that requires space and a little bit of special attention but the rewards are quite huge. For those people who are dithering, I would say that, you know, that if you've got plenty of space, then it is a really great crop to grow because you get very good value out of it. And really, although I know you quite rightly said uh, that it requires keeping free of weeds, but apart from that, um it's very easy going and um no more difficult to me than growing a, a patch of raspberries or something like that in fact 
probably easier because it can just stay there for for years and years and years so I think you've done it the the right way you've devoted your space to it and uh, I love the nasturtium ideas but um but yes and I think I think am I right in saying that there are boy and girl asparagus is that right Yes, no, that's true. Male and female plants. And and the males produce many more spears. So I think on a general rule, if you're going to buy your varieties, that they're now generally more males are sold than female. Um, There is, so you can extend your season actually, which I should have said. So you can buy early, early fruiting, mid season fruiting and slightly later. So I've got, well, I've got one, which is called, I don't know how you pronounce that, it's called Jinlim, which is G-I-J-N- L-I-M, Jinlim. It's quite an early one. It's male, but it's a heavy cropper, which is really quite good. Big, fat, tasty spears. But it will tell you if you look online or, or um, have a look, you can choose your, your varieties. Pacific is a really good late season variety to buy. And you can probably start picking in April and you could push the boat through to the middle of June. Maybe, I'm not sure about the end of June, but that, yeah, that's quite a long time. The other thing I should have said is that you need a fairly sheltered spot. And although when you plant your crowns, you need to water them in and you really need to keep the watering up in your first season. But once that's that's happened and you've got over the first season, you get through to the autumn. Asparagus is actually very drought tolerant. So it's been really good for me. I've actually got my patch um, of asparagus next to a wall, which dries out quite a lot. And as we've discussed um, in previous comments about um, global warming and, you know, things, the water shortages, etc., it's probably quite a good plant to grow, provided you can give it sufficient water for its first first season. Then you don't, I, I never water mine, it's fantastic. Um, and then also that I read a sort of an old, an old gardening technique where early in the season they would sprinkle table salt or salt all over the patch which apparently was to keep the weeds at bay i mean i'm not sure if that really works but i think dan you said that you have a lot of asparagus growing near you which sort of sort of by the seaside i'm wondering if there's a link with that or maybe it's just the soil i don't know i think it might be the soil and the climate here in east kent because it's very dry we have a lot of areas of that used to be inundated by the sea where asparagus is now grown. So perhaps there is a bit of residual salt there, I don't know. But I think it's because it's quite dry, it's very bright, almost Mediterranean, he says, looking out of the window at the uh, the driving rain. And... Um, and it's just very good asparagus growing territory. So in a in a few weeks, we will have pop-up asparagus shops on every corner selling asparagus from as fat as your thumb through to as thin as a needle. But um, yes, it's a little luxury. And one of the great benefits of living in Kent is that we have the most uh, superb produce on our doorstep. So I feel very lucky. But yes, you've definitely sold asparagus to me today. Well done. Julia. Good, I'm pleased. And I'm smacking my lips waiting for those tender spears to come through. They really are very good. Me too. (laughs) So we're going to round off um, every episode with a rundown of jobs that you can be doing in your garden over the next fortnight. And this time it's Dan's turn to do the honours. So Dan, what are you going to tell us to do? 
It is indeed. So I'm going to go like the wind because we've uh, nattered on for a, <laughs> for a long time today. Um, so I'm just going to whiz through the jobs that you can be doing in your garden this fortnight. So planting your potatoes out. So however you want to do that, dig a trench, use a bulb planter, however you want to do it. Uh, just remember to earth them up when the shoots come through to protect them from any late frosts. You can carry on growing sweet corn, courgettes, pumpkins, butternut squash, basil and coriander from seed, but make sure you grow those indoors somewhere that is warm. And then beetroot, carrot, chard, kale, lettuce, radish, pak choy, leeks, spinach and broccoli, you can start sowing directly outside in nicely prepared ground in drills and they will soon produce seedlings if you get pigeons and things where you are just make sure you cover them with a little bit of fleece to protect them as they come through annual flower meadow mixes can be sown now but make sure the soil is really well prepared and even just as you would do it if you were growing a lawn and that way you'll get really good germination Deadhead your daffodils unless you'd like them to seed. In a grassy area, perhaps seeding would be a good thing, but probably in your borders, the thing you want really is nice flowering size bulbs for the next season. So pinch the daffodil heads off and pop them on the compost heap. Water your pots and containers. As I found out just today, they dry out very quickly and you will soon see plants wilting even if it rains quite often. So make sure you water them and give your containerized plants a good start to the season. April, when the weather is starting to get nicer, hopefully we'll have some balmy days soon, is the perfect time to clean your patio with a jet washer or in the old-fashioned way with some sharp sand and a broom and to clean down your garden furniture. So that's a good job for a sunny day. I don't know about your clematis, but mine are growing at a tremendous rate of knots now. Some of them have got almost four foot of new growth on them. So make sure that you tie those in so that they don't become untidy and start flopping around all over the place. It's a good time to put in stakes for your perennials before they start to grow too tall. And I always say stake early, stake well. They won't look very uh, pleasant for a short time, but by the time we get to the Chelsea Flower Show, they will be invisible and you won't have to worry about supporting them. Start checking for bugs and encourage predators such as ladybirds into your garden by leaving... Uh, little piles of straw and twigs and things that they can go and shelter in in the garden but you will find as soon as the weather warms up that the aphids will start moving in both green fly and black fly. If you've been forcing your rhubarb like Julia has then it's time to remove those forces now and put them to one side. Don't put any further strain on that rhubarb crown and just let it do its thing for the rest of the season without picking any more leaves from it because it'll need time to recharge its battery. It's time to start hardening off plants if you live in milder areas. Do it very, very gently. So just put them outside for a couple of hours on mild days and bring them back inside and gradually introduce them to more and more of the outside environment. But definitely don't plant anything outside until all risk of frost is over. Otherwise, you will lose things. 
And something that uh, I have really noticed for the last two weekends, I've been stood outside for most of the time. And even though it has been cloudy and dull, I have got a bit of colour on my skin. So now is the time to start putting on sunscreen when you go out in the garden because the sun is much fiercer than you think. That is brilliant advice, Dan. So yes, so get a, get a head, get a hat and get your sunscreen on because you're absolutely right. We just don't notice it and um, we have to be very careful these days, don't we? So really good. Lots to do. We are going to be very busy bees, aren't we, in our garden? <laughs> Before we go, uh, we would like to share what we're going to be up to between now and the next episode, which uh, will be out on Friday the 28th of April. So hopefully you won't be too bored of us and you'll keep listening. Um, so I'm going to start off and I've got a meeting with Alatec about the Chelsea Flower Show and our stand so there's lots to plan and um, and lots to sort out and logistics etc so that's quite exciting um, I've also got a one-to-one in someone's greenhouse so I often help people and a new greenhouse is arriving in her garden and I'm um, going to be helping her set that up and get her going for the season I am back on BBC Radio Sussex and Surrey, but this time I'm not visiting in person. I'm dialing in, which is just as well because there has been no loofah liftoff. So, oh dear, it's a good job I'm not going in with my pot of my jam jar of seeds anymore. Anyway, I have to think of something else to talk about. Um, and then I am going to a, um, a local antiques fair, which happens in Ardingly, and uh, it's good sourcing ground for the Chelsea Flower Show for props and things. And last but not least, I'm going into battle with the mouse in my greenhouse. <laughs> Dan, what are you up to? Well, we wish you well with that. I don't know if I can offer you any useful <laughs> tips on um, rodent management, given my track record with our rats. But anyway... Um, so I'm very much in the eye of the storm right now. I've got uh, things on every weekend. So you'll be able to find me all over the southeast for the next uh, two or three months. This weekend, I'm at Green Rooms Market at the Turner Contemporary in Margate on Saturday. And then on Sunday, it will be my brave other half, John, manning the stall. So that on Sunday, I can go to the Spring Fling Plant Fair at Great Comp, which is near Seven Oaks, an absolutely beautiful garden. And that is 10 until 5, I believe, um, in the gardens. So a really lovely day out and some of the best nurseries in the southeast you'll find there. And then the following Sunday, I will be at Arundel Castle. So I get to go to some stunning places. Don't always get to see them. Um, but Arundel Castle on Sunday, the 23rd of April, another really tremendous plant fair where you'll be able to stock up on some really scrubby plants and I am going to have to somehow make room in my car uh, to bring a few little finds home. And finally, a little reminder on behalf of our show sponsor, Alatex, that they've got an open morning on the 22nd of April from 9 until 4 at their headquarters at Torbury Farm near Petersfield. It's going to be a really fantastic opportunity to see their beautiful greenhouse structures and tour the factory for an insight into how they're made, which is something I myself would like to see. So that's all for this episode and it just remains then for me to say goodbye and goodbye from me. 
You've been listening to the Two Good Gardeners podcast with Dan Cooper and Julia Parker. Sponsored by Alatex, home of the modern Victorian greenhouse, designed in the UK for over 70 years and built worldwide. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then why not click follow on your favourite podcast platform so that you don't miss out. Leaving a rating or writing a review will help us reach other gardening enthusiasts like you. We'll return here with a freshly prepared smorgasbord of delights in a fortnight. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at dancoopergarden, at parkers underscore patch and at twogoodgardeners or visit our websites. You'll find the addresses in the show notes. If you've got questions for either of us, you can email them to hello at dancoopergarden.com. Until the next time, happy gardening!